Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may your church be encouraged this morning as I share, and may your name be honoured. Amen. One of the things about having been home for some months is that I've been able to talk to a lot of you about Ghana. And I even shared what I'm going to share today in December in the evening service. And so some of what I say today will be familiar. And so I hope you enjoy hearing again these things as much as I enjoy sharing them with you. And that God will reveal more of himself to you as he has to me in my preparation for this morning. Holy Trinity has been my home for 27 years. But each time I come home, the family has changed. I know some of you very well. And you know a lot about these last 10 years that I've spent in Ghana. And others I am completely new to. And you are new to me. And so for what I want to share today, I need to set the scene for you by sharing a little bit about the people amongst whom God is working in Ghana. And it's good to remind ourselves, and I've said it again and again, that this is God's work in Ghana, working through you and working through me. I am not alone out there. I have people like you who stand with me, supporting me financially and through your praying. And you are as much part of God's work in Ghana as I am. And so today, what I share today, are some of the answers to your prayers. Now, I'm working amongst a people called the Sasala, way up here in the northwest of Ghana. The Sasala people are farmers. Each year, they hope to grow enough food for their families for the rest of the year. They live in extended families, and the voice of the group is all important. The voice of the individual is not They survive through unity and conformity, and they depend on each other. And the Sasala relationships with each other are paramount. If you ask the Sasala person what they believe, they will tell you they are Muslim. They believe in the supreme God, Allah, and they will pray to him five times a day and go to mosque on Fridays. But God is distant. He is unknowable. Much more important are the belief in the ancestral spirits. When a person dies, they become part of the living dead. And it's vital that the family keep these ancestral spirits happy. And they do this through conformity and unity and through sacrifice in order to keep these spirits happy. And so the Sasala identity is Muslim, but at the core of every Sasala, is this veneration of the ancestral spirits. And Islam, in the form that exists in Sasala, doesn't challenge this veneration. The two live very happily side by side. And this is seen as a huge barrier for the gospel. When a person becomes a Christian, they stop worshipping those ancestors. And this brings immense fear upon the community because the actions of that one person will bring calamity on the whole community. And of course, in a climate where rains are poor and the provision of health is very poor too, calamity does come and the Christian is blamed and persecuted. 
And it's perhaps for this reason that the church amongst the Sasala has really struggled to grow. In truth, it's got smaller until now. God has begun to build his church through a very special group of people. Look at our passage today in Matthew 18. I wonder if you've ever noticed that when men look for greatness, they look up. But when God looks for greatness, he looks down. During some of the biggest crises in the history of Israel, God has chosen a child to be at the forefront of his plan. As Israel cried out under the oppressive slavery in Egypt, God began their story of salvation with a baby in a basket and a little girl who stood by waiting to see what would happen. And when the temple of the Lord was being desecrated by the sons of Eli, and in a time that the the, the Bible says the word of the Lord was rare, God spoke to Samuel, a little boy in the temple. And when Samuel, as an old man, was looking for the next king of Israel among the strapping sons of of Jesse, God chose David, a shepherd boy. And hundreds of years after the death of David, God sends the promised Messiah, his own son, the saviour of all mankind, is born as a baby. God chooses to reveal himself. Perhaps he's able to reveal more of himself through children. And he chooses to do his work through children, not because of what they can do, but because of what he can do through them, because they are children. We're encouraged, aren't we, as Christians, to always look forwards to the cross and beyond the manger. Jesus is not just for Christmas. We see it on the back of cars. And we understand why in a society where Christmas is huge and Easter is barely acknowledged. But let us sit a while at the manger and look at what God is teaching us through Christ there as a baby, as a child. And to quote Alan in the December blue sheet, may we all find that little baby to be so much bigger than ever we thought before. What does God reveal himself in that manger? And in today's reading, we get the sense, don't we, that the disciples, the question they ask Jesus is not a question out of the blue. They've been discussing it it for some time amongst themselves. In fact, some of the translations say, who then, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who then? And I wonder who the candidates were. Moses, Elijah, Peter, James and John had just witnessed the transfiguration and come face to face with these greats of Israel's history. David, our Lord, let's ask him, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And what an extraordinary moment it must have been as Jesus turned away from his disciples and called a little child, and had him stand amongst them. Jesus is not interested in the hierarchy of heaven. He is interested in the heart, in the hearts of his disciples, in your heart and mine. And for this reason, he calls a child to stand amongst us. I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We look up for greatness. The Lord Jesus looks down.
And there are perhaps three possible ways of understanding this passage. Firstly, we can take it literally. All that Jesus says here concerns children. And it's the passage that Child Evangelism Fellowship, the largest mission dedicated to reaching out to children with the gospel, uses to encourage the worldwide church to take the evangelism and the discipleship of children seriously. Read literally, Matthew 18, 1 to 14 is rich and it's compelling, but it's incomplete. And the second way this passage can be taken and understood is to see the child as a metaphor. And that is indeed what Christ wanted us to see. But so often in sermons I've heard, the speaker moves our focus from the child too quickly on to the metaphor. And in doing so, we get a much more comfortable version of what Jesus was actually wanting us to see. Much less rich, much less depth. Jesus wanted the disciples to gaze upon the child in their midst. And the third way is to say it's not either or. It's not either literal or metaphor. It's both and. Read these verses literally and you see the father heart of God for children revealed passionately. Read as metaphor, but let our eyes rest a while on the reality of the child. Do not move on too quickly. And unfortunately this morning, we are going to have to move on too quickly. But I hope to demonstrate through the lives of the children some of what Jesus wants us to see here. A child is vulnerable. I sensed last weekend a vulnerability. I sensed it in myself. A child is vulnerable. How vulnerable? He is completely vulnerable. Do we touch that level of vulnerability in our relationship with Christ? Do we? A child is dependent, entirely dependent. Do we really hold all that we have and all that we are so lightly that we depend on nothing apart from Christ? Look at a child's trust. It's absolute. Is ours? A child's joy is exuberant. His anger is cataclysmic. Anyone who's witnessed a tantrum in a supermarket knows how cataclysmic. A child's sorrow is tragic. There's no reservedness about children. Everything about a child is unrestrained. And it's completely exhilarating. And at other times, completely exhausting. We need to keep our eyes on the child in our midst. Because God has so much to teach us and to show us through children, precisely because they are children. And when we move from the child to the metaphor too quickly, we underestimate the power of God to bear witness to himself through this child and to challenge our hearts through this child in our midst. And what I'd like to do this morning is to share with you a few examples of what God has been teaching me and teaching the Sasala Church powerfully through the children in our midst. And in doing so, I want to share with you some of the journey that you and I have been on and the prayers that have been answered as you have stood with me as a church through these last 10 years. Many of you know when I first went out to work amongst the Sasala, my job description was the discipleship of women and children. However, I didn't do children. I didn't like anything I couldn't control. 
And so my plan was to work amongst the children and wait for somebody else to come and teach the children. Sorry, to work amongst the women and to leave someone else to teach the children. But I began to practice my language, and I decided I would teach the eight children who came to church a Bible story. Well, very quickly, eight became 28, and then 58, and then utter chaos. But God was showing me something very special. Here was a completely unreached people group, eager to know more of God and hungry for his word. Many of these children were from Muslim homes. Many would be going to Islamic schools when they were old enough. But for the next few years, they were here in church under a tree, and they were listening to and responding to the word of God. And God grabbed my heart for children in a very powerful way. Every Sunday, the children were the first to arrive and the last to leave. You know, children know when something rings true. Many of you have heard these statistics, I'm sure, but if you preach the gospel to 100 people over the age of 35, you can expect four people to respond. But if you preach the gospel to 100 children under the age of 15, you can expect 85 to respond. And even if the stats are slightly out, I know which group I want to be working with. Children know when something is true. My five-year-old nephew's first question about God, and he's not from a believing household, was not, does God exist? It was, what does God look like? God is truth, and the heart of a child knows it. And those early years were challenging because the response of the church was rather like the response of the disciples when the mothers brought the children to Jesus to be blessed. We have a problem, the church would say. We have too many children. And I felt some of Jesus' indignation. Here was a church who had prayed for growth for years, and God was giving them growth, and they were complaining. But God began to do an amazing work through these children in the hearts of the church. And gradually the adults realized that because of the children, they were a big church. And when a large gift of money was given to the church, they decided to build a building for the children to meet in. And when the children saw that building, they praised God. They already knew they were important to God, but now they were an important part of the church of God, and they were important to the church of God. And as believing children, they were being accepted for what they are. They are part of the body of Christ without whom the body of Christ cannot work to its full potential. And that was three years ago, and God has continued to teach us so much more through these special disciples of his. In those early days, if I'd asked a child at Sunday school, what must we do to be saved? And I've shared this before with you, and I don't tire of sharing it. They would have replied, be good, obey God. And I need you to grasp that a child's life is spent being good, for fear that the gods will harm them, or the white man will eat them up, or that Allah will punish them. It's all about obedience and fear. A gift freely given is just not a concept they know. So imagine my joy that Sunday morning when we'd been reviewing all that we'd learned about the ministry of the Lord Jesus, and I said to them, who did God send to be our saviour? Easy question, Jesus. And I asked them, what did Jesus save us from? And some children said sin, and others said the punishment for sin. And then I said, and how did he do that? And there was a silence. And then one little boy stood up, 
And with his hand on his heart, he said, the blood of Jesus has washed my heart clean. The blood of Jesus has washed my heart clean. God reveals himself to children, and through the children, God is building his church amongst the Sasala. Each week we hold children's Bible clubs in different villages, and each week close to 100 children hear the gospel and are disciples. And every Sunday we have up to 70 children attending Sunday school. And we now have this wonderful building which allows us to split up the classes into smaller groups. And in the next village, a little village about 10 minutes drive away, it's called Koye, God had laid the children on the hearts of two women, Gifty and Florence. And they began to hold a Sunday school at their church, too. And just like Tumu, the children flocked to church. But when the children saw the building that Tumu had for the Sunday school, they wanted one too. And so they told the church, we want a building too. But the leaders told them it was not possible. Koya is a little church with little money. And so the next Sunday, the children bought a bucket full of maize. And they told the church leaders, we are going to sell this maize to raise funds for our church building. And the church was so impressed by the children's faith, they decided they too would step out in faith to build a building for the children. And they got together and they prayed and they decided to put the 800 Ghana CDs that they had saved in their accounts towards the building of the children's rooms. Now, 800 Ghana CDs is about 250 pounds, and it would have taken years to save. A good collection on a Sunday morning would barely reach three Ghana CDs. But they had been so challenged by the childlike faith of the children that they, too, stepped out in faith in a powerful, loving God. And literally a few weeks later, my team leaders received a letter from Australia from a previous short-term associate who had worked for a year in Accra in the south at the capital. He'd never been to the Sasala area. His wife had died some years back, and he said that she'd always wanted to be involved in mission. He therefore wanted to give some money from her estate to Koya Church in order for the rooms to be built for the children. He was in Australia. Koya was a little village in northern Ghana. And I guess only God knows how Bill heard about the children's desire. And guess what? The amount was the exact amount needed, in addition to the 800 Ghana CDs, to build the planned two rooms for the children. And the adults in Koya Church were amazed, and the children in Koya Church wondered why. (laughs) And those rooms are nearing completion. God is building his church amongst the children of the Sasala, and he's encouraging and challenging his church through the faith of the children in the Sasala. Briefly, further down the road is a village called Vamboy, and there's another church. But this one is a children's church. Vamboy is deeply Islamic, and children cannot go to church on Sunday. And so Esther began a children's club on Wednesdays, and each week she has up to 80 children flocking into her compound. And each week they'll call out to her and say, Mama, Mama, when is church? When is church? And she will say, Wednesday evenings. Come on Wednesday evenings. Last rainy season, I got a call from Pastor Simon, Esther's husband, to say that the church building had collapsed. This would speak very loudly to the surrounding community. 
The ancestors are angry because your people are not following the ways of the ancestors, nor going to mosque. Well, the church on Sunday prayed, and the children's church on Wednesday prayed. By this time, my team leaders had returned home, and they'd been sharing with their supporters about the work amongst the Sasala. And afterwards, a group came up, and they said, we really want to help. We want to raise funds to build a church. That morning, Kyung Sol had opened up his email and seen this picture of the fallen church in Van Boy. Van Boy now has a concrete block church with two children's rooms and an office. God is building his church amongst the children of the Sasala, and he's encouraging his church through the faith of the children in the Sasala, and God is blessing his church through the prayers of the children. All of these children face persecution. Adults are spreading rumors and telling the children lies to discourage them from going to church, even as they walk to church. Others are forbidden from going. I've seen it happen that a child will be in Sunday school, the mother will see the child and pull him out of Sunday school and beat him. And the next Sunday, he'll be there. We have so much to learn from the children in our midst. So from being a reluctant worker amongst children, I've been thrilled to watch God work amongst the children and see his church grow as a result. But what about the hundreds of adults around the church? Many of them are Muslims. For years the church has prayed for these people, but with very little visible fruit. Can God reach these people through the children? And I want to close with one very special story about one very special little boy that I introduced you to earlier. And I still can't get this through this, through this story without becoming emotional about it. So I want you to forgive me. I'm going to read the story. A young Muslim mother stepped forward that Sunday morning and placed her child in my arms. My little boy asked to come to Sunday school. This little boy was curled up in, his, in, a, in a ball. His knees were digging into my ribs and his arms clung tightly around my neck. And his body was covered in stained bandages. Three months earlier, little Sita had stood too close to the fire and his shirt had burst into flames. He had had three months of enduring daily dressing changes, no sedative and no pain relief. And now he was home and his first request on that Sunday morning was to be taken to Sunday school. Sita desperately needed skin grafts. That he was still alive was a miracle. His burns covered over 20% of his body. He still needed to attend hospital three times a week with his father for dressing changes, and I went with them. And his screams were heart-rending. After the hospital visits, Sita's father and mother would help me gently stretch Sita's little body out over a pillow. And slowly, he uncurled. And after three weeks, Sita began to walk. But both his walk and his faith were that of an old man who had known much suffering. A few weeks later, as we began our Easter program, Sita's father, dressed in full Muslim dress, brought Sita to church. Please, will the church pray for my son? And the church of the Sasala people prayed, loudly crying out to God to touch this little boy and heal him. And looking back on that time, Sita's father shared, from that day, my little boy began to change, but something inside me changed too. The Baptist Mission Hospital was five hours away and a doctor was flying in from the US in two weeks' time who was able to perform skin grafts and they were willing to see Sita. 
It was vital for Sita's father to talk to his village elders and get their permission and to the hospital and get theirs. And I didn't know at that time that neither his village or the local hospital gave him permission. The family did not trust the white man's medicine. Indeed, they said Sita's burns were because either he or his father had done something wrong and angered the ancestors. Others said it was the will of Allah. The hospital discouraged him because they knew the risks of what was involved. But still, Sita's father decided to go. As long as my son has no health, I have no health, he said. I knew the risks of this going wrong. And so I asked Sita's father if I could share his situation with supporters around the world so that they could pray. He agreed, and you prayed. Five days after Sita's skin had been grafted, he went back to theatre for the first look. He has a near 100% take, the doctor informed us. Three weeks later, Sita returned for his final checkup, and when I picked his father up, his father exclaimed to me, Udarana, it is finished. The graft had healed completely, and Sita did not need to return to hospital. The following Sunday, a little boy in shirt and shorts sprinted past me after a stray football. It was Sita, no longer looking old and crooked, but by the, like the little six-year-old boy he is. The church members struggled to believe it was the same child. Today, Sita's whole family belong to the body of Christ. Sita's father goes round to his neighbours and he just says, Jesus is good. Jesus is the right way. And his mother has been praising the name of Jesus for Sita's healing from the early days. And Sita, well, Sita continues to come to Sunday school and he loves it. And he continues to run after footballs. He's on his fourth and counting. You know, the village elders are wrong. God did not cause the suffering of this child. But God did use the suffering and the faith of this one little boy to bring a whole Muslim family to Christ. God is building his church amongst the children of the Sasala. He's encouraging his church through the faith of the children in the Sasala. God is blessing the church through the prayers of the children. And he's growing his church through the witness of the children. God reveals himself through children to others and to us if we would but allow ourselves to sit with the disciples and gaze upon the child in our midst. Thank you so much for praying. Amen.